about that six weeks ago as we looked at Genesis 1, that you and everyone uh, that we know on this earth, uh, the people we love and the people we, we really can't stand, all created in God's image. And not just people, but everything in the world, the, the, the stars and the sun, the earth, the, the uh, plants and the, and the animals, the, uh, uh, everything that we see was created good. God looked at everything on six day of creation and said, it is very good. Of course, if you open up the paper, you'll get another story. If you read your news feed, you'll get another story. And this leads to essential number two, which is that you and I were not okay. Something happened. And in Genesis 3, it says that Adam and Eve in this perfect garden, created good, surrounded by everything good, chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that God said, if you eat of that tree, you will die. They ate of that tree, and that moment, the spiritual death overcame their life. In time, they did die physically. And if not for God's grace, all of them, uh, all of us like them, would have died uh, eternally. Uh, We're not okay. All of us were born in Adam and Eve's likeness. All of us were born under the curse of sin and death. All of us know death in our lives and the power of sin in our lives were broken. And so is all of creation. If you think, you know, if God created everything good, why is there an earthquake in Turkey? Why are there storms in the Midwest and the South that kill people? Why is there a war in Ukraine? It's because of this. Sin and death are Uh, alive in this world, and we live underneath that curse. That leads to the third essential, which is that the cross is the cure. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came down, took on human flesh, lived his life as an example for us to how to live, showed us and taught us what the kingdom of God was all about, but ultimately went to the cross, which we remember this Friday on Good Friday. On that cross, the one perfect man took our sin and death upon himself. The, the man who would never die, the eternal second person of the Trinity, died in our place. The, the one who never sinned took the penalty of our sin on his life. He took our sin and death upon himself on that cross to cure us from this uh, enslavement that we have to sin and death. That leads to the fourth essential, which is that you and I, we can start again. Because Jesus didn't just die on that cross. Three days later, which we're celebrating this Sunday and Easter, he rose from the dead. He gives us the assurance that we too can rise from the dead. And that even right now at this very moment, his Holy Spirit can come into our lives and give us a new spiritual life. The spiritual death that we experienced in Adam and Eve's fall, he can give us a new life right now. And one day he's going to be creating a new heaven, a new earth where we, where we can live with him forever. And that's the fifth essential, which is that you you can trust God, it ends well. One day Jesus will come back. He'll create a new heaven, new earth. The uh, heavenly Jerusalem will come down from heaven, and all of those who are in Christ will be resurrected uh, into a glorified body, and we will live with him forever. It ends well. And so that leads to the sixth essential, which is today, which is that the gospel is a person, not just an idea. I don't want you to think after hearing all this that I've got it. I've got the gospel. I've believed these five truths. I can share these with my friend. That's the gospel. Because in a sense, that's not the gospel. The gospel is a relationship. It's an encounter with an actual living being, with the person of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our King and our Savior. It's allowing Jesus to have that place in our heart and our lives where he can forgive us of our sins, where he can give us a new life, where he can assure us of heaven, where he can teach us that we are adopted into God's family. And, and the triumphal entry and Palm Sunday is a perfect 
illustration of what it means to accept Jesus. Actually, today we're also uh, having baptisms later in this service. A perfect example of what it is to say yes to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The, the gospel is not just an idea, not just something we believe, not just something we profess, but the gospel is a person who's come into this world so that we can know God and be known fully by God. We're going to talk today about what does it mean to receive the gospel? What does it mean to receive the gospel? And there's three things that we see as we look at this text about the triumphal entry. We're looking at Luke's version from Luke 19, 28 through 44. If you've got your sermon notes, it'll help us as we go along. The first one is that we accept Jesus as our Lord. The first way that we receive Jesus, according to this text, uh, the way that this text is laid out, is that we accept Jesus as Lord. We allow Jesus to be our Lord. We, 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 we recognize Jesus as the owner of our life, as the Lord of our life, as the one that we are accountable to. Look at verses 28 through 34. This is Luke chapter 19. It says, after he said these things, Jesus was going ahead. This is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday before Easter. Going ahead, going up to Jerusalem, when he approached Bethage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. The first way that we see in this text that we as followers of Jesus need to accept Jesus into our life is that we accept him as our Lord. We allow him to be the Lord of of our lives. We accept him as the master, as the ruler, as the Lord of our lives. If you, if you remember the story, maybe you do from your own Sunday school or from being through in church, the, this is Jesus' last entrance into Jerusalem. This is what we're talking about. Jesus, like all faithful Jewish people of his day, would have visited Jerusalem multiple times a year. It was required by the law that uh, a, a righteous Jewish person this time would visit Jerusalem for the three major festivals. And Passover was the most important. And so throughout Jesus' life, he would have gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. Throughout his three years of public ministry, we see him going to Jerusalem for Passover. But typically, if you remember the stories, he goes to Jerusalem kind of secretly. One year, he went completely secretly. His disciples went ahead. He told them, I don't think I'm going this year because the, the Sanhedrin is looking to arrest me and my time hasn't yet come. And then he kind of sneaked into town by himself so no one would notice. He's been keeping a low profile in Jerusalem because his time's not yet come. But on this occasion, his last moments of his public ministry, his last week of life on this earth before the cross, that now his time has come. 
You, you, you get that. This is the time for Jesus to reveal himself. And so as he comes into Jerusalem, this is the time that he wants everybody to see what just a few people have seen here and there throughout his public ministry, which is that he is the Lord. He is the King. He is the Messiah. He's the one bringing God's kingdom. And so as he goes in Jerusalem, he's thinking, what do I do that reveals lordship? Now, in your day and age, if you wanted to be seen as the Lord, you probably have ideas what you would do. But in his day, the thing that he needs to proclaim his lordship is a fancy ride. That's what he needs. He needs to go in Jerusalem in a way that everyone will go, whoa, look at that. Who's that on that colt, right? That's what he wants people to see. And so as he's headed into Jerusalem, he's thinking, how do I get attention to my lordship. Of course, the issue is, is that Jesus is a poor, itinerant preacher. You know, he's a walker. He's not a rider. And so, as he's entering into town, he knows that in, in the towns near him, as he's headed to the Mount of Olives, that, that there's a colt on which no one has ever ridden. The, the other synoptic gospels tell us it's the colt of a donkey. It communicates in that setting, in that day and age, it communicates kingship. To ride into town on a donkey that no one's ever ridden on, that's a sign that this is a new king. And so as he's approaching the city, he tells two of his disciples, go into this town, Bethage, and and as you go into this town, you're going to find a colt on which no one's ever sat. Get it and bring it to me. If anybody asks you, why are you taking the colt, just say to them, the Lord has need of it. And so sure enough, two of his disciples go into the town. They find the colt tied up there just the way that Jesus describes it. They start untying the colt. And you know what the owners say? What you would say if somebody was taking your car from in front of your house. Why are you taking my colt, right? What, what, are, what are you guys doing? In just the time that we expect to see these disciples arrested in the Jerusalem Post saying two of Jesus' would-be Messiah disciples have been arrested for grand theft cult, they're, <laughs> they're taking this beautiful new cult, still has that new cult smell, uh, down the road for Jesus, and they're putting Jesus on his back. And, and part of it, you just read that and you think, now, how did that happen? You know, was this all set up? I mean, we don't know the, the background. It's kind of a mystery. But the one thing you can say from this text is that the owners of the cult recognize that Jesus is Lord. That's clear just in English, but if you look at it in, in Greek, it's particularly clear. On your sermon notes, verse 33, I underlined the word. As they were untying the cult, it's owners. The word owners in Greek there is actually the Greek word kurios. Kurios means Lord or master. It's the same word that you see in verse 34 where it says, they said, the disciples, they said, the Lord has need of it. The Lord is this Greek word kurios. In fact, most of the time the word kurios is used in the New Testament is translated Lord, either lowercase Lord, like somebody who's got a respectful position, authority, or uppercase Lord, like the Lord in heaven or Jesus our Lord. These two words are the same, owners and Lord. So literally it could be translated as they were untying the colt, it's Lord's said to them, why are you untying the cold? And they said, the Lord has need of it. The obvious implication is that Jesus is the Lord 
of the Lord's, right? That the Lord's of this colt, they're the owners of the colt, but Jesus is their Lord, and if their Lord needs their possession, it's his. And, and so what you see in this text, and it's very important that we understand this is in the triumphal entry, is that these owners have recognized Jesus as their Lord. You know, life begins to make sense in a special way when we experience this essential element of the gospel, that we allow Jesus to be our Lord. All of us own something, right? We may own possessions. We may own financial resources. We may own just the time and the clothes on our back. But all of us possess something. We're all lords of something. But our lives make more sense when we allow Jesus to be our Lord. We allow Jesus to rule our lives. And so the question this text is asking us and the question that, that, Ash, that, that Palm Sunday is asking us is, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord? Or are you still trying to rule your own life? Am I, am I submitting myself to this Lord, or am I still trying to be the Lord of my life? Because the truth is, is the gospel, it's an essential element of the gospel that we allow Jesus to be our Lord. Jesus came to set us free from all the bondage that we experience in this world, but it's only when we allow him to be Lord that we can be set free. And so the first way that you see that accepting Jesus is they accepted Jesus as their Lord. The second Roman numeral on your sermon notes, and the second way that we accept Jesus is that we accept Jesus as king. This is the second Roman numeral on our sermon notes. The first is that the owners accepted Jesus as their Lord. Now the disciples, you'll see, accept Jesus as their king. Look at verses 34 through 36. It says, they brought it, the two disciples that went to get the colt, they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and they put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. They brought the colt to Jesus. They put their coats on the back of the colt. They put Jesus on the back of the colt. And then as, as, the, as Jesus was walking by in this colt, they were taking their coats off and they were laying them down before Jesus as he walked down the road. Matthew and Mark in their Gospels tell us that those that didn't have coats were cutting branches off of the trees and the bushes nearby, the palm trees, and they were laying them down in front of him as he walked by. Now, for us, we probably don't fully understand the symbolism of that. We recognize that they don't either care very much about their colt, their coat, or they care a lot about Jesus. And the truth is, is that they care a lot about Jesus. But taking your coat off and laying it before somebody when they walked into town was a symbol of recognizing their kingship. That it was a way of saying, I give my allegiance to this person. I recognize this person as my king. That's within that tradition. In fact, in ancient Israel, there's a story of a time when uh, Elisha goes and anoints a new king. This is in 2 Kings chapter 9. Uh, at that time, a guy named Joram was king, but he was an evil king in Israel, and God no longer wanted him to be king. And so God told Elisha the prophet, go and anoint 
Jehu king, and Jehu's going to be my king. And so Elisha goes to where Jehu is, and he invites him into the house, and he says, I've got a secret message from you from God. You're going to become the king, and he anoints him as king. And then he runs and flees because Joram is king. This is an act of treachery. And so Jehu comes out, and his friends all say to him, what did that prophet want from you? And he said, well, what do you think? He's anointed me king. And all of his friends and all of his neighbors start taking off their coats and they're laying them down before him when he walks by. You can see this in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. It says, Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him, the king Jehu, on the bare steps and blew the trumpet and said, Jehu is king. Just so you understand the story, Jehu wasn't king. Joram was king in Shechem, but they were saying, I'm giving my allegiance to Jehu because God wants him to be king. And so when Jesus is coming into town, all the disciples, we don't know if these are the 12 disciples or the 72 larger group of disciples or the followers, but they begin taking off their coats and laying them down before Jesus. And what they're saying is, this man is my king. He's coming into Jerusalem and I'm accepting his kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. I'm aligning myself, I'm giving my allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. Just so you remember, Jesus is not in a political sense the king, right? Even when he stood before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate asked him, are you the king? He's the king of the Jews. And Jesus said, I am a king. He says, well, where's your kingdom then? He says, my kingdom's not of this world. It's not an earthly kingdom. It doesn't have a physical army. It's not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. But these disciples are giving their allegiance to that kingdom. And so Jesus comes into town. Now, if you remember, uh, Herod Antipas is king of Galilee at this time. Pontius Pilate is governor over Judea at this time. And a man named Caesar Tiberius is the king of kings. He's the king in uh, Rome, the Caesar of this time. And, and so to take your coat off and lay them before Jesus, that looks like an act of treachery in that environment. In fact, the, the accusation that the Sanhedrin brought Jesus to uh, Pontius Pilate with is that this man claims to be a king. But they're saying, I'm accepting him as my king. He's going to rule my life. And the question that this text asks us is have I ever done that? Have you ever done that? Have you ever accepted Jesus as your sovereign, as your king? Have, have you ever taken yourself off of the throne of your heart and put Jesus on the throne of your heart and said, I'm following him? Because the thing is, is all of us are going to have a king. All of us are going to serve somebody. Like Bob Dylan said, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but we're all going to serve somebody. And, and, and many of us are going to serve our own egos. We're going to allow our ego, our selfishness, to be the king of our life. Some of us are going to serve a career or a boss. Some of us are going to serve money or some idol in this world. But we're all going to serve something. But the point of the gospel is our lives only makes sense when we allow Jesus to be the king of our lives. Why? Because every one of these earthly kings is going to disappoint us. Herod Antipas is going to die. Not only is he a horrible king while he's alive, one day he's going to die. 
Tiberius is going to die. Your money's going to pass away at some point. You're going to be separated from it. Even our own selfish ego one day is going to be humbled. The, the only sovereign that gives our life real purpose and meaning is the king. Is Jesus the king? Is God the king? And so this is the second way the disciples recognize Jesus. First, the owners recognize Jesus as Lord. Second, the disciples recognize Jesus as king. And that's the second essential in how we accept Jesus. We make him king of our lives. Sovereign of our lives might be a better term. And the third way that people accept Jesus on that triumphal entry is they accept Jesus as Savior. This is Roman numeral three on your sermon notes, accepting Jesus as Savior or Messiah, accepting Jesus as our Messiah, as the one who forgives our sins and the one who sets us free and gives us a new life. It says this in verse 37 through 40. It says, As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, he's now coming up over the Mount of Olives and he's at the very top of the Mount of Olives and he starts the descent down into Jerusalem. As soon as he's Near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, this is a quote from Psalm 118, 26, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what they're shouting, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. If you, if you can imagine the scene, if you've been to Jerusalem, you, you probably have in your mind, I've got a picture of it here. But Jesus is, is cresting the Mount of Olives. And as he crests the Mount of Olives, I think there's a picture. Uh, as, there, this is the scene. There's this valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. It's just like a mile from where he is to the Temple Mount. Of course, now the Temple Mount, what sits in the Temple Mount now, is the Dome of the Rock, which is called Omer, and Alaska Mosque, which is here. But in Jesus' day, there was a temple sitting right here, and there's a eastern entrance to the uh, to the uh, temple. Right here, this entrance is closed now. It's been closed for 1,300 years. But in Jesus' day, this eastern entrance was open. And Jesus would have ridden down the mountain on this donkey, on this colt, and then walked right through this gate into the temple. This was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and he'd walk through the eastern gate of the temple and he'd bring his kingdom into this world. And as all the disciples, this is the crowds of disciples that are gathered around, watch Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives. They're like, this is it, right? He's coming. The, The Messiah is here. He's riding on this donkey colt. He's, people are, are recognizing his kingship. They're putting their, their coats before him. And he's coming to reign. He's coming to the temple to rule and to establish his kingdom. And they start pronouncing, shouting this messianic psalm. This Psalm 118 was written, you know, in the time of David, but it was foretelling the coming of the Messiah. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the Pharisees understand what's going on. They hear it and they're like, Jesus, tell your disciples, be quiet. They're calling you king. They're calling you the Messiah. They're blaspheming. And Jesus says, well, they're telling the truth. 
I'm bringing my kingdom. Of course, it's not the type of kingdom they're expecting, but I'm bringing, I'm establishing my kingdom on this earth. The question this text asks us is, have you and I accepted Jesus as our Messiah, as our Savior? Have we received Jesus as the one who forgives our sins and gives us a new life? And offers us a new start. That, that's what it is to be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come and establish a new nation, a new people, a new, a new covenant. Have we accepted that covenant? Have we accepted Jesus as our Savior? Because it's essential to the gospel that we accept Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King. That we allow Jesus to, to be the one who's going to forgive our sins and give us a new start. See, some of us still think we can be our own Savior. That if I work hard enough, if I do this well enough, I can fix my own life. If, if, I, if I just try, if I just put my mind to it, I can fix this. Or some of us are egotistical enough that we think that we can fix our world, you know? If I just work hard enough, if I just pronounce this truth loud enough, I can fix this world, or I can fix my marriage, or I can fix my kids, or I can fix what's wrong in my community. But like the ancient Israelites who lined that road, at some point in our life, we come to the realization that I can't. For all my hard work and all my good deeds and the best that I give it, I can't even fix my own life, let alone fix this world. The good news of the gospel is, is that God has sent a Savior. And when they see him coming down, they're like, finally, you know, everyone in Israel is waiting for the kingdom to come, for life to be the way it's supposed to be, for God to rule on the throne the way that God should rule on the throne of Israel. And they're like, finally, he's here, the, the Savior's here. And they're saying, praise the Lord. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our salvation. Well, that's the good news of the triumphal entry is that there are people who recognize Jesus as Lord, the owners of the cult. There are people who recognize Jesus as King, the disciples. There are people that recognize Jesus as Savior, these crowds along the road through the Kidron Valley. But the, the discouraging message of triumphal entry of Palm Sunday is that many people miss Jesus. And the real message of this text is to say to us, don't miss Jesus because he's coming He's riding through our lives. He's coming into our world. And, and it's natural, it's normal to miss him. Look at Roman numeral 4. This is Luke 19, 41 through 44. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, so now he's across the Kidron Valley and he's coming up through the eastern gate. He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things that make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The question that this text has is, are you and I recognizing the time of our visitation? Do, do we recognize that Jesus has come into the world? Have we received his kingship? Have we received his lordship? Have we received his messiahship? Have we received him? 
Jesus is looking at the city as he enters it, and he's thinking about these tens of thousands of people in the temple and around the city. It's the Passover. Everyone's coming to town. It's crowded. And he's seeing all these people who have missed it. They're still putting their messianic hope in somebody else. They're still looking for a different Savior. They're still putting their sovereign, uh, submission of their sovereign to the sovereignty to somebody else. And he knows where it's going, right? And maybe some of them put them in a Pharisaical hope or a Sadducee hope or a hope for a different Messiah, but he knows where it's going. In less than 40 years, the Romans are going to get tired of these little rebellions that are happening, and they're going to come in and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to tear down the temple. They're going to kill everybody in there and scatter all the rest of the Jews. And for 1,900 years, there's not going to be a nation of Israel. And Jesus knows that, and he weeps over the city because he's like, you, you, you missed it. You, you, you missed the Messiah. It doesn't have to be this way. But it's true in our lives as well, that when Jesus rides into our lives, we have the choice that we can choose his kingdom. We can choose his lordship. We can choose his salvation, or we can choose another route. We can put our hope in somebody else, in something else, in some idol, in ourselves. We can think we can do it. And the message of, the, of Palm Sunday is don't miss it. Don't miss Jesus when he comes into our lives. And, and, and for this sermon series, what I'm saying is, don't just hold to, I'm a church person, I believe these truths. The question is, have I received these truths? Have I received the person of Jesus? Is he sitting on the throne of my heart? Is he my Lord? In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate this sacrament of baptism. And baptism is a perfect example of what we're talking about today. It's, it's when we say, yes, I need you, Jesus. I want to be washed by your water. I want to be brought into a new covenant with you. I want to be birthed into a new life. I want to be adopted into the family of God. I want to, I want to be yours. That's a work that Jesus does, but it's a work that we receive when we say, yes, Jesus. And the main point of all this is that the gospel is a person. The gospel isn't just ideas that we profess. It is that. But it's more than that. The gospel is a person. It's someone we accept. It's someone we have a relationship with. It's someone we receive. Let's pray that we might receive he who is the gospel. Lord God, thank you that you sent Jesus into the world to give us a new life to give us a new kingdom, to invite us into a new family. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us this opportunity in our lives to say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I don't, I don't want to rule my own life anymore. I want you to be king. I want you to sit on the throne of my heart. I want you to set me free from all those things that rule my life. And Lord, I want you to be my savior. I want you to forgive my sins and invite me into this new family, this new covenant that you have. Lord, may today be a day that we recognize you. May, may today not be a day that you pass by and we miss you like so many have. May today be a day that we say, yes, Jesus, I want you and your forgiveness and your new life in your kingdom. Come, Lord Jesus, make us yours. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.